0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today we're talking with Jan Castles, a multi-award-winning filmmaker and cinematographer, activist, and eastern suburbs local. In today's show, we talk about her most recent film, When the Camera Stopped Rolling, which is featuring in Sydney Film Festival. We also talk about her wonderful and great inspiring work as a local activist. You're listening to Coogee Voice. (laughs)
1: We made this, you know, me and my editor and and my team, we made this from the bottom up and so we were able to really respond and whenever it wasn't working we just go, what's wrong with that? And often the film kept demanding more and more honesty, more and more personal truth because that's where the best story was. So I just kept following that impulse and this is where it's led me. Because Australia is a small economy, it is not going to be sustaining just to rely on ticket sales. So the the Australian industry has always and will continue to need government support.
0: Jane, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today?
1: Thank you. I'm going really well and really happy to be here. It is our absolute
0: pleasure to have you on the show. Before we get into talking about your latest documentary and your really wonderful career, how has lockdown been for you?
1: Well, I guiltily have to admit that um, apart from the death and devastation happening around the world, I actually enjoyed it. Um, I'm a bit of a recluse. And so I actually quite liked being less social um i'm on un- I live under the flight path, and the plane stopped, so it was really quiet and um I got to really focus on um you know this film finishing the film um with a bit more peace and quiet so yeah, and then you know I got vaccinated, so that was good and yeah, so and also it was, you know, I know climate change has not, you know, there's not been much of a dint in it, but it was a little bit, you know, it would it would have been worse, I think, for the world if planes have been flying and everyone was traveling all over the place during that time.
0: I know there have been some really beautiful pictures of places like Venice, where dolphins have come back. And you've actually seen that when you have less human intervention how quickly it can be for our environment to regenerate. And I think that is actually a really comforting thing because particularly, and we'll talk about your activism, environmental activism. I think sometimes when we have conversations around climate change, it seems big and it seems like we can't actually do anything. But we showed that in a really short amount of time, a lot can change. And I hope for people that, for me in particular, gave me a real sense of hope about the future and what actually can be done in a relatively short amount of time if we focus on it
1: absolutely i mean nature is very resilient thankfully and yeah we didn't see our economies collapse you know there was a bit of you know a bit of instability but nature nature came back nature came back and let's make more of that let's make more room for that to happen what is it
0: that drew you to the eastern suburbs
1: Oh it has to be the water the horizon you know I lived in the inner west for most of my adult life and um, I moved here about six years ago and I'm just like every day I think why didn't I come here earlier and I'm never going back you know just having nature at such close proximity it really allows my my soul to kind of thrive and my creativity to um, you know regenerate and to be really just nourished by, I mean nature is so nourishing on a on a creative and spiritual level. So it's a total no-brainer. Um, and like Merimbula Beach, anyone who lives near Merimbula Beach or has come to it, you know, it just allows you to drop into another kind of realm and out of that, you know, really directive thinking mind and go into a more creative space. So it's been perfect. Now,
0: you're a multi-award winning filmmaker and cinematographer. You're an activist. There is a lot for us to unpack here. I really want to start though with your most recent film, When the Camera Stops Rolling, a new feature documentary it's an incredibly raw and revealing film and I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for sharing this story. Why did you want to tell it?
1: Well, interestingly, I actually didn't want to tell that story when I started to make the film. I had some other idea, but the film had a bit of a mind of its own and um you know when we were applying for funding and you know getting people to come on board It just was where the film wanted to go and it wanted to go towards this story of my mother and me and, well, you know, what the story is about. And, you know, my biggest kind of role was to keep listening to the film as we made it. You know, we made it from the ground up and it's, it's very different. Often films are made very top down, like you have a plan and then you execute the plan. We made this, you know, me and my editor and and my team, we made this from the bottom up and so we were able to really respond and whenever it wasn't working, we just go, what's wrong with that? And often the film kept demanding more and more honesty, more and more personal truth because that's where the best story was. So I just kept following that impulse and this is where it's led me.
0: When the Camera Stopped Rolling is being released at the Sydney Film Festival. Can you tell us a little bit more about the documentary and when is it being released? When can people see it?
1: Okay, so we're premiering at the Sydney Film Festival in early November. It'll have two screenings uh, at Event Cinemas on George Street and at the Chevelle Cinema in Paddington. Then we're actually going to take a little bit of a pause and our commercial release is going to happen in mid to late March next year. And that's mostly because there's this this massive backlog of these blockbuster films that were made during, you know, COVID and, you know, couldn't be released. So we're just going to take a bit of breather and then we will kind of build slowly up to our um, commercial release, which will be in the capital cities across Australia. And um, we're negotiating deals at the moment. And we're also partnering with lots of, organizations. So we will have smaller community screenings with Q&As across the country too.
0: Why did you want to tell the story of your mother and your relationship
1: with her? That's a great question. You know, in the beginning, I didn't even think I wanted to tell that story. But once the film got going, I realized that there was this drive in me, this need to make, kind of to make sense out of chaos and to create meaning of all of the experiences in my life so far. And, and, you know, that involved a lot of, you know, early childhood trauma and a lot of confusing things happen. So it really helped me to um, put a, put a narrative. And as I say in the film, I, I learned to put a frame around the chaos. So making the film is like framing that chaos and putting things in order. And, you know, it also forced me to do um, research about my parents and um, so it gave me a great understanding of these two people who had been so influ- influential in my life. So, you know, I've been doing, you know, work on my own personal healing and, you know, evolution and self actualization for many years. And in one way making this film was um, an extension of that. It was part of that process, you know, making meaning. For me the
0: film also sort of unpacks this story around the complicated relationships that mothers and daughters can have. I myself I love my mother. She is one of my best advocates. She is also one of my best critics. And I mean that in a very humbling and kind way and not to reduce her or our relationship. And it's really I loved the film and I'm for anyone who's listening Please go and see it. Ideally, go and see it at an independent film place. Go like the Ritz. Um, go the Ritz. <laughs> um, for me, that was a really important part of it. Is talking about mother-daughter relationships and the complicated, the complications of that, that sort of sit there and normalising that a bit because I think sometimes we can feel a bit of guilt and shame around these relationships. But yeah, particularly when you have. To ambitious, pioneer, outgoing, creative people where you occupy similar spaces, butting heads, challenging each other and that growth as well is also part of it.
1: Just yes, yes, yes. I mean, they don't call families nuclear for nothing, right? <laughs> and um, there's also this saying, you know, like your, your family knows how to push your buttons because they install them. So if you take on the the massive task of working together, the challenge of working together, and in a creative space, I mean, it's just like when you're bound to have, you know, rupture. But you have rupture and repair. And you know it's part of relationships. It's it's how we grow is by kind of butting up against other people and trying to work it out. So you know it, it's good, but it, it's not easy working with your family. And you know we on Mum's film that I shot for her back in the eighties. Um, yeah, we we had a few kind of tense moments and yeah I, I kind of wanted to do it my way and she wanted to do it her way I thought her way was old-fashioned and you know in my arrogance you know I was just out of film so I thought oh I know you know the best way to make a film and but you know actually the film is better for that I think you know often the result is better for that creative tension and if you can bear it and if you can not just completely go your separate ways I think you're ahead of the game.
0: Now, you've shot feature films, documentaries, a vast range of music videos from Prince, U2, Mary J. Blige, Usher, In Excess. I have a particular interest, though, in the work that you've done with Greenpeace um, and Total Environmental Centre as well as your own local activism around the area. I want to know what has been your favourite things to film?
1: Okay, so my favourite thing to film is just like going around with the camera, particularly with nature, like, you know, there's some shots of Maroobra Beach in the film. Oh, my God, that is just I'm in heaven alone doing that. But it it doesn't really contribute much to the world except, you know, creatively. But what I loved doing when I was at Greenpeace, for example, was filming actions and, you know, you've got these amazing, brave activists in their climbing gear scaling buildings, just being up there really quite dangerous situations but very, you know, with safety front of mind and documenting that and being part of it and actually there's a real adrenaline when you're part of a a really important action like to stop a coal mine or to, you know, help, you know, change policy of some sort and it's really creative and it's unpredictable, you know. You know, at some point the police are going to come at one point, I got arrested, um, up, a, you know, um, filming the an, an action against the Malls K- Creek, um, coal mine. That was a bit tough, I have to say. Um, it's a bit rough being in the back of a paddy wagon, you know, and doing knowing you're doing something that is helping to change the world for the better, really nothing beats that.
0: You're saying you don't get that same rise out of filming
1: rappers' twerk? Definitely not. <laughs> I mean, you know, in in the rock and roll pop industry, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ego anywhere, but you know, it's so much about image and illusion. Project people projecting their fantasies onto someone, and someone thinking that they are that megastar. And and you know, as a cinematographer filming these, you know, rock stars, you're kind of buying into the fantasy. And what you're doing is, you're kind of trying to figure out how people how these you know stars want to be seen and and how people how people want to see them and you just try to make them look beautiful and it's completely I mean it's great it it is beautiful but it's also unrealistic and it's also a bit shallow because you know especially in that mainstream industry you are basically helping record companies sell records so you're part of a machinery you know a money making machinery that that's kind of the looking at it from the dark side you know on the positive side f- filming music videos is a really creative space you know it's very different to say fi- filming feature films which have because there's so much money and time and you have they have to be it's almost military you know style organization it's kind of anything goes on rock clips and it's it was kind of like my second film school you get to experiment you get to try out new equipment you can fail because there's always something else you can do. And, you know, music is it's not a cerebral kind of um, perceptive kind of field. You're, it's a very creative. Music and image together, is, you can have a lot of fun, and I did have a lot of fun.
0: I want to talk about your activism. For a period of time, you put down your camera and became an activist. Why? That's a great question.
1: So, after so many years of looking at the world through a lens, I felt really disconnected from it actually and separate from what was happening. And um, what, what changed me was that I, I made this documentary about a woman called Nancy Hillier, who was a botany local and she'd been an activist her whole life. And she was fighting this big chemical company, Orica. And when during the making of this documentary, I, I would look at her through the lens and I'm like, I want to do what she's doing. I want to feel empowered. I want to feel part of the world. I want to be making a change. I don't want to just be looking at the world through a lens and having this something turn up on screen. So it was really part of me, I don't know, becoming, having more agency and becoming more empowered as a person. And, oh, my God, it's so exciting being, you know, you're being, I mean, you would have this completely. You are where the action is, where decisions are being made, where policy is being formed and put into place. I mean, there's there's really nothing more exciting than that, you know, and, and sometimes I would you know, help write speeches, you know, propose speeches for, you know, MPs in Parliament and things. Oh, my God, it was, like, intoxicating. And I know it's not, you know, it's not totally real either. And it's not the only place that change happens, but it is a very focused place that change happens. So that was more exciting than filming rock stars for sure.
0: The environment has been a particular focus of yours. What are your thoughts on Australia's action or inaction towards climate change to
1: date? Oh, I'm embarrassed to be an Australian quite frankly, it's, um, I remember back, you know, when Bob Hawke was around and, you know, we could feel good as a nation, you know, good things were happening, but I'm just appalled Um yeah, I'm virtually speechless. You know, it's just disgusting what's what um, this government, this federal government, has done um, to not just to the environment, but to Australians. So, and I think Australians want to do the right thing. You know, they dutifully recycle. You know, and they, you know, they try to switch off their lights. They're trying to do these little things. And there's so much for potent, potential for renewable energy in this country. We've got the resources. We've got the sun and the wind and all this new technology coming online and, you know, it's money for the mates, you know. It's shoring up the coal industry and it's just, and, you know, it's not going to be great for our economy. We're going to have to transition faster now. We've, we've lost a decade basically. I mean, you know, I'll, I could just go on and on about it but, yeah, basically we get an F on that front and I feel like we're an international embarrassment.
0: So what are your thoughts on net zero by 2050?
1: Well, it sounds fine, but it's really the least we could do and we need to be going harder and faster. We need to have a strong target by 2030 and, you know, why not aim for net zero by 2030? I mean, we can can do it. You know, we have the know-how, we've got the technology. All we need is the willpower and the right people in government.
0: Now, on Could You Voice, we have a special place reserved for highlighting women, in particular addressing underrepresentation of women. Sort of going back to women in film, there's been a lot of dialogue in recent years regarding not only the lack of recognition um, that women receive, sexism in roles, sexual assault of women in the industry. I'm interested to know your thoughts on this and if you think things are changing.
1: Well, the film industry is a great example, in particular, cinematography. And women have been just terribly underrepresented in the film industry for many, many years. I think it's been around 2% for quite a while. Uh, It's a traditional male area. And when my mum began as a filmmaker, she shot her own film in 1957, single-handedly. And she went, to the government film board and asked for a job as a cinematographer, they said they just laughed her out of the room. They said, you know, you're not going to be strong enough to carry the cameras. So that is changing and it's changing because of the really hard work by a lot of women in a lot of areas and um, especially in Australia and uh, the women are quite active in this body called the Australian Cinematographer Society. One of the issues on film sets is about childcare. You know, film shoots go routinely 12, 14-hour days and then, you know, at the end of the day you often have to watch rushes and do prep for the next day. They're gruelling hours and um, it's pretty hard for women who are mothers to juggle both. So childcare is something that really needs to be addressed as as is equal pay. You know, when I was a cinematographer, I would... I would experience a lot of sexism, but like my mum, I don't know where she got it from, but she just had this thing of brushing it off and not letting it affect her, but I know it affected a lot of women, and um you really had to work so much harder to get them to get the blokes on the side and you know i was I was sexually harassed while I was shooting you know one guy I was doing this I was on a feature film, and I was doing this tracking shot, and it was a very sensitive scene, and the actor was basically crying, it was a very delicate scene and we were tracking in towards this actor. Um, this key grip, who's the guy that pushes the dolly along, who I relied on to get the film made, he stuck his tongue in his ear, in my ear and and it was obviously a dare and all the men cracked up and I I couldn't stop the shot because it was such an important shot but I tried to kind of get rid of him. And you know, at that point, I was a lot younger and not as confident as I am now. And I didn't—I basically didn't address it. I just laughed it off because I—I I feel like I couldn't risk getting this guy offside because I needed him to, you know, help get the movie in the can. So it's a tricky situation, and not—you know—most men are pretty good, and they're getting better. But there's still this kind of old guard, and there are, there's still always a couple of men who really resent having a woman as his boss in what is traditionally a male area. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it is changing. and There are some fabulous women cinematographers around. There's Mandy Walker, you know, who works in Hollywood, Justin Kerrigan, who's just won an ACS award. There's a lot of women coming up through the ranks now and it's really great to see.
0: What about the underrepresentation of
1: women in awards? I think the lack of representation of women in the awards process I think it's a reflection of the underrepresentation of women in the industry. I mean, I, I don't know about the judging panels. It, may, you know, they do need to be gender neutral, and if that's not the case, that needs to be changed. But I, it's really, I, I think, probably women overperform in awards compared to the amount of representation in the industry. You know, often women have to over-achieve to, You know, be treated as equal. And it is changing, but it, you know again it's slow, and it' be great to see it'd be great to see a woman win um the Oscar for best cinematography that that should happen soon, I would say
0: Film in Australia and in particular in New South Wales, what needs to be done to support the Aussie film industry?
1: Well, because Australia is a small economy, it is not going to be sustaining just to rely on ticket sales um so the... The Australian industry has always and will continue to need government support. But over the last 10 or so years, government funding for both feature films and documentaries has just been eroded. Screen Australia keeps getting cut. The National Film and Sound Archive has kept getting cut, 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 cut. and um, it's just not sustainable. So we need a government that actually values culture And the arts as much as they value sport and I've got nothing against sport I love sport I love soccer I used to play soccer I love the Matildas but we need you know this this country has had had this habit of kind of um minimalizing the value of culture and art and I think that needs to turn around but at the moment it's going in the wrong direction but basically it's funding What are your thoughts on quotas for streaming
0: services to have Australian content?
1: I think that is absolutely necessary. And we we have had quotas over the years in terms of cinema and TV production, and I don't see why we shouldn't have quotas for Australian production for streaming as well because, uh, you know, the US and Europe, but particularly the US, it's such a big economy, we will get swamped. And then we will lose our, you know, our unique culture. Um, and we need to, we really need to support that and the individuality of Australian stories to speak up. So, yeah, I'm I'm all for quotas. Now,
0: your mother is clearly a significant influence in your life. Who are the other great influences for you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um I think my influences are—they're like um, environmentalists and social justice leaders. Um, Vandana Shiva, um, she's an amazing Indian activist, and in fact, there's a film at the Sydney Film Festival this this year about her. Filmmakers like Chris Marker, um, James Baldwin, the American writer. There's a fabulous film called "I Am Not Your Negro." Yeah, uh, who else? And mostly activists, you know, Nelson Mandela, of course, uh, Martin Luther King. In Australia, uh, Faith Bandler, she was a First Nations activist, brilliant person. Yeah, and I've had quite a a strong, um, you know, parallel spiritual life, and I've done a lot of kind of meditation. So there's a few Buddhist monks along the way that I, I really respect.
0: Now... Before I let you go, there are three very tough questions we ask all the guests that come onto Could You Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where sells the best coffee, and
1: where you can get the best burger. Go. Maroobra Beach, the Bay Bakehouse, Bobby's at Bondi, um, and they had fantastic gluten uh, gluten-free replacement for the burger. So, yeah, there we go. Marubra, the Bay Bake House for Coffee, and Bobby's for burgers.
0: Delicious. Everyone, go and check it out. I haven't been there, but you've heard it from the horse's mouth. And if people would like to learn more about you and your films, where should they head to?
1: Yeah, just go to when the camera stopped rolling dot film or just Google it. Our website should come up. And yeah, it should have information on screenings. It's got a lot of background information on the film. The trailer is there. Yeah so so come and have a look and I'd lo- love to hear any feedback and you know have conversations like this one with lots of other people
0: Jen thank you for joining us on Coogee
1: Voice Thank you very much thanks Marjorie for having me
0: What an inspiring woman Now all I can say is get out and watch this documentary it is amazing You've been listening to Coogee Voice.